Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today I'm talking about Season 6, Episode 17, Normal Again, where Buffy hallucinates that she's in a psychiatric facility and her parents are still alive. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story expert, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. You can find my fiction at lisalilly.com. Along with a breakdown of Normal Again, I'll talk about why a kind, compassionate character here makes Normal Again more chilling, ways to convey exposition when all the characters already know what's happening, how to add new backstory to an ongoing storyline, and a very strong plot without a clearly defined single midpoint. As always, there'll be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Normal Again aired the first time on March 12, 2002. It was written by Diego Gutierrez and directed by Rick Rosenthal. And I'll share some highlights from the DVD commentary by both of them. For both, it was their first time on Buffy, which I find amazing because this is such a well-written and well-directed episode that I would not have guessed that it was done by two creators who had not worked, uh, who had not had those roles on Buffy before. The opening conflict here relates directly to both a season-long arc and the conflict in this episode. Buffy approaches a house that's on a long list where she's crossing off properties. She is looking for the geek trio. We'll find out later that this is a list of properties Willow compiled, and it's never clear why nobody has gone hunting down these houses before. Inside, Jonathan is asleep when he's supposed to be watching monitors in the basement of the house. They are living down there. Warren startles him awake by shooting him with a giant super soaker type water gun. Jonathan is very jumpy. He hasn't slept well since Katrina's murder. All three of the geeks argue, and Jonathan says how cooped up he feels and why can't they at least sleep upstairs. And Andrew says, we're on the lam. We have to lay low, underground. And Jonathan responds, that's figurative, doofus. Did you even read Legion of Doom? Andrew now notices Buffy outside, the first one to pay attention to the monitor, and Warren tells Andrew to deploy his little friend. Andrew plays notes on this long wind instrument. I think it might be a didgeridoo, but I'm not positive. Very low notes, and outside, a demon approaches Buffy. She asks if it might have eaten a couple nerds. It doesn't answer. They fight. It's a great fight sequence. She jumps up on top of a car. They seem pretty evenly matched, but then the demon jabs her with a poker that shoots out of his arm, and we get a very early story spark at 2 minutes 36 seconds, and that is the incident or moment that starts the main plot rolling. When this demon jabs Buffy, she suddenly is in a psychiatric ward 
ward of a hospital screaming as orderlies hold her and try to jab her with a needle, and they talk about whether they're going to have to restrain her. On the DVD, the writer and director said they love that the audience is as surprised as Buffy with that switch to the hospital. And one of them said he kind of wished it was the last show of the season. He thought it would be a great cliffhanger. They also said on the DVD that Buffy episodes that really get to the heart of the matter fast and go right to that metaphor are the strongest. And that this episode worked well here in the season rather than earlier because a lot had to be built up so that Buffy would believe that she might really be in a psychiatric ward, as we'll see later, and they both like the focus on the emotionality of Buffy as a character. Quick note, in the commentary, I I will not be able to distinguish between the writer and the director because they didn't always say who was talking, and I, I couldn't tell which one was saying what. We go to credits at 2 minutes 59 seconds, and on return, Buffy wakes up outside the trio's lair. She's confused. She looks really dazed as she walks off. The scene cuts to Willow. She is at school practicing what she'll say when she crosses Tara path which she is waiting to do and Willow says hi um, Tara how are you well I was wondering maybe if you want to go out sometime for coffee food kisses and gay love she sighs and tries again hi Tara guess what magic free now for insert number of days she stops when she sees Tara a ways away crossing the hall looking happy she doesn't notice Willow Then another young woman sees Tara and they kiss a quick hello. Willow, so sad, hurries off. Tara sees Willow retreating, but it's too late to follow. And on the DVD, they commented that this fits with the character arcs for the episode, that all the characters are insecure about who they are, their worth, and what is going on in their lives and that fits that Buffy might question whether all of this could be in her mind. At 4 minutes 59 seconds at work at the Double Meat Palace, Buffy flashes to the hospital again and there a white-coated woman says it's time for Buffy's drugs. She is very quickly back at work and the manager Lorraine, who we met in uh, the first Double Meat, episode says if she didn't know better she'd think Buffy was on drugs and Buffy just says something like okay and dumps out a basket of burnt fries. Later at home Willow and Buffy talk about where Xander might be and Buffy asks how things went with Willow's plan and whether Willow saw Tara and Willow says I was seeing her she was seeing someone else a girl Willow is not sure if it was romantic or not, and she goes on, I mean, they're probably just friends. I press my lips against my friends all the time. The doorbell rings. It's Xander. He apologizes for not calling them, and they tell him he doesn't need to explain. He asks about Anya. He went by the magic box, and it's closed, which chilled him to the bone. And Anya's things are gone from the apartment, and he has to find her. And he says, before she left, Did she say anything? And Willow responds, you mean between the sobs? There was mostly just wheezing. Buffy tells him Anya was kind of broken. Xander doesn't know how things got so mixed up. He really blew it. 
Buffy tells him no, but maybe that wasn't the best time to break up with Anya. And Xander claims it's not about breaking up. He loves Anya and misses her. Willow says, so you left her at the altar, but you still want to, and Buffy finishes, you still want to date? Xander answers, I guess. I know that I'm a better person with her in my life, but things got so complicated. And he goes on about everything. This is one of the moments, along with the conversation between Anya and Xander at the end of Hell's Bells that prompted me to do a bonus episode for patrons. I just posted that. So if you haven't seen it yet and you're a patron, go check it out. It's what should Xander have done in season six, also known as Xander Anya Buffy Spike. Looking at given that Xander proposed at the end of season five, he can't go back and take that back. Could he have done anything in season six to salvage the relationship? And also, what were the effects of Buffy and Spike on Xander and Anya through the season? Xander goes on now that he's got this hole inside him since he left Anya, and he's the idiot who put it there. He really screwed up. Buffy tells him they have all screwed up. A great transition to the next scene where Spike walks through the cemetery carrying a grocery bag with cigarette cartons, and he sees Buffy. And he says, looking for me? And Buffy responds, really not, and keeps walking. Spike asks if she cried at the wedding, and Buffy says, oh, he didn't hear. He then asks her if the families tore the place apart, and Buffy tells him, well, yes, but that's not all. And they sit down on a bench and start talking as she tells him the wedding didn't happen that Anya's devastated and Xander thinks they can get back together, but Buffy kind of doubts it. And Spike tells her some people can't see a good thing when they've got it. This is the first veering back towards season six Spike compared to last episode when he struck me as more of season five Spike and he and Buffy left things on a good note. It is realistic, though. People don't just resolve things once and for all and feel fine and go forward. It's not a surprise that Spike would still say something like this. Willow and Xander now join them, and Buffy stands and pretends she was trying to figure out what dangerous contraband Spike had. And I can see why Spike gets irritated with that. Though Buffy is clearly doing the protest too much thing, he takes it badly and just says he'll get out of the way. Xander makes it worse by telling him to run along. Spike calls Xander the king of the big exit. They start bickering. Willow tries to diffuse all the testosterone-fueled conflict, which is veering toward a physical fight while Buffy collapses onto that bench again at 10 minutes 33 seconds. And the others don't notice. And Xander says, I forgot. Willy Wannabite can't hurt me. On the DVD, the writer and director said they really worked on showing in the first act how much the relationships between these characters have broken down. They are all tired of what they're going through this season. They're frustrated with each other. So when the idea of the mental asylum really takes hold, it feels like it could work. It feels like it could be real. 
Spike is ready to fight despite the pain he knows he'll have in his head. Xander punches him and Buffy, who's very weak now, tells them all to stop it. And they finally realize that she's in trouble as she's kind of gasping and holding her hand, her head. And at 10 minutes, 40 seconds, Buffy flashes to that psych ward again. A doctor is there and he tells Buffy, who is crouched in a corner, that she's not in Sunnydale. It's not real. She's been in the hospital for the past six years and Buffy flashes back and forth to the cemetery as the hospital scene progresses and now we get what I see as the one quarter twist that first major plot turn that should come from outside the protagonist and spin the story in a new direction raising the stakes. Here at 11 minutes 30 seconds the doctor tells Buffy look who's here and we see Joyce and Hank Summers together and Joyce says Buffy welcome home sweetie and we cut to a commercial such a great hook on the commentary they identify this as the act break on return at the hospital Buffy says mom and she looks so distressed and glad to see them at the same time and the doctor says she's lucid sounding very surprised so maybe in this world, they have tried this before. He tells them to keep talking to Buffy. Buffy squeezes her eyes shut as her parents plead with her to stay. And on the DVD, the writer and director said they liked intercutting between Sunnydale and the hospital because the emotionality in each of them echoes the other and that it was a little tricky to pull off without losing either storyline but they cross-reference each other and reinforce each other they also commented that Joss did not want to tip either way on what scenario was real he wanted each one to seem as real as the other so that's why there's no um, soft focus there's no smoke there's no slow-mo or anything at the hospital that would make you say oh this is not real and he wanted the audience to make the leap between the two worlds and start seeing them as real in the beginning the audience thinks Sunnydale is reality but the more they layer in the hospital the more it seems like that could be it too which is why they end that first act by seeing Buffy's mom and dad together that's when the audience starts to associate with that hospital world as well because we all want that for her and I think the writer and the director did an amazing job at this and they also comment on how good Sarah Michelle Geller is that you really see in her face all these internal struggles in both realities in the cemetery Spike says they should take Buffy to his crypt but Sander tells Spike to go Buffy is their friend he and Willow will take care of her and they walk away on either side of Buffy supporting her and Spike calls after them put a little ice on the back of her neck she likes that that second part is more to himself and this does add to why spike is so difficult later in the episode last time i questioned whether it would be justified that the resolution spike and buffy reach the way they're honest with each other and they are in certain ways kind to each other and seem to have this resolution why spike 
goes back to being kind of awful in this episode. And I do think they do a pretty good job building that here because Buffy's kind of awful to Spike, Xander's really awful to Spike, and he feels so pushed aside and discounted. At home, Buffy tells her friends about the hallucinations and the demon that stabbed her, and she goes on talking about the hospital. They told me that I was sick, I guess crazy, and that um, Sunnydale and all of this, none of it was real. And Xander, in a wonderful uh, few lines, says, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. What, you think this isn't real just because of all the vampires and demons and ex-vengeance demons and the sister that used to be a big ball of universe-destroying energy? He trails off, and Buffy says it felt so real, and she tells Dawn their mom was there and dad too, and they were together like they used to be. Buffy looks so lost and sad. That is why we can have Buffy telling her friends and her sister things that we already saw as an audience, but it still has such emotional resonance. It doesn't feel repetitive because we are seeing the effect on Buffy, and that is new, and we're seeing the effect on the friends. Willow says, okay, all in favor of research? She raises her hand and says, motion passed. So she is very concerned about Buffy. She hands out assignments and Buffy flashes to the hospital again. We're about 14 minutes, 33 seconds in. Now there is a long section of exposition And this one's tricky because the doctor explains to Buffy's parents a lot of things that most likely they already know because they seem very concerned. I get the impression they've been visiting Buffy a lot. It's not that believable that they don't know this. And there is a little bit, we'll see the writer does a little bit to kind of counteract that. But all the same, this strikes me as uh, that sort of, as you know, Joe, and the character then says all this stuff. And in fact, I would have sworn that I watched a DVD commentary by Joss Whedon where he used this as an example of that kind of exposition that you try to avoid. Uh, But he didn't write this episode and he's not on the commentary. So I don't know if it was somewhere else that I saw it or I just in my mind thought of this as an example because the doctor who is very kind and thoughtful and compassionate explains to her parents that Buffy could recover and Joyce asks could she be like she used to be so that's a little bit new that that's okay but then he says he's not sure and then starts explaining how she's been catatonic for six years from schizophrenia And then there is a little bit of conflict because Hank says they already know her condition. That's not what they're asking. Clarifying, okay, we're aware. We're asking you basically, can she recover? But now the doctor gives more exposition. They probably already know saying uh, her delusion is multi-layered. She's a hero in an intricate lattice work with superpowered friends who are more real to her than her parents. They face an assortment of monsters imaginary and rooted in known myth and every time they think they're getting through Buffy comes up with more fanciful monsters pausing my comments on exposition for a moment this is where on the dvd the writer and director talk about how they wanted to write the doctor as kind and compassionate and wanted an actor who would play it that way as this actor does who could really convey that because 
it is actually scarier when the doctor is gentle and kind. And that is such an important point because what's frightening here, this could have been written with like a cartoony doctor and they're going to keep Buffy in this hospital and you're afraid she'll never get out of this mental prison because of the way this delusion is built in a scary way. But that wouldn't have been nearly as interesting or as emotional as where you're starting to feel like, oh, this doctor one might get through to Buffy in this world and you can see why she wants to listen to him if he was maybe not even scary, but just more intense, really pushing her um, or, or criticizing her or just with some sort of stereotypical doctor in an institution, whatever negative stereotypes we have about them, he's just going to pump her full of drugs or whatever it is. It would be easier to see that as the nightmare realm, but here you can see where, oh, her parents are concerned. They love her. This doctor really wants to help her. It's never good to be in a psych ward or at a, you know, a mental uh, psychiatric hospital, but this one seems like they are genuinely trying to help Buffy, that Joyce and Hank have gone out of their way to find the best place they can for her. And it makes you see that Buffy has so been missing people taking care of her. And you start to see where this could be a draw to her, why she might start listening. And that makes it such a more deeply affecting episode. As the doctor talks, Buffy starts mumbling about Warren and Jonathan and how they're the ones doing this, and the doctor assures her they can't hurt her here. Buffy says Dawn and starts crying, and the doctor explains to the parents what, again, they probably know already, that Buffy inserted Dawn into the delusion, rewriting everything to serve her need for family. Now, we need to know this as an audience because we need to see how these worlds are connected. How is the show fitting this in? And it's important because we want that sense that, oh, this could be real. Joyce or Hank could have pushed back a little more and said something like, well, how can she think this is real? It's so ridiculous. And they could have said the thing about fighting monsters and demons. How can she not see this is imaginary? Or the sister thing. How can she have forgotten that she never had a sister I don't understand or doesn't suddenly having a sister doesn't that tell her this can't be real that she can't just put a sister into this scenario now we get in a little more conflict the doctor says to Buffy that introducing Dawn created inconsistencies didn't it and now the delusion isn't as comforting as before things are falling apart Buffy's very upset Joyce urges her to listen and the doctor says Buffy you used to create these grand villains to battle against and now what is it just ordinary students you went to high school with no gods or monsters just three pathetic little men who like playing with toys. At 16 minutes 57 seconds, we cut to those three little men. (laughs) 
I have got a couple comments on previous episodes. This is by patron with the name Vasectomies Prevent Abortions, a philosophy I agree with. This is about Hell's Bells, who says, in response to your comments about Xander's mother thinking she won't be in the photos, there is a term, and mom and and dad, used to refer to extremely narcissistic parents. Parents like this are likely to make comments like Xander's mother because it focuses attention on them, requiring reassurance that they will be in the picture. This is common more generally as well, not just for weddings or big events. I love this point. Her concerns she expresses are a metaphor for exactly that type of narcissism. If it's not that she's really concerned about being in the literal pictures, the photographs, what she is doing is making sure she is in the figurative picture, that this time when her son is getting ready to get married will be focused on her, will be all about about her. That makes so much sense to me. I had read her a little more like my mother who had a lot of worries and anxieties, so she could make it more stressful anything like this because she would keep expressing well what about this and that's not perfect and you should do this if it wasn't just the way she wanted it but generally I think it came from her anxiety about feeling things had to be just so and that's why the picture thing didn't make make sense because I thought of course she's going to be in the photos but if you read it as narcissism that makes total sense I love the metaphor if it was intentional or not. Even things that are not intentional by the writer can work really well as a metaphor. And then my friend Roberta Lip commented on the Buffy in the Art of Story Facebook page about As You Were and my comments in that episode about are we supposed to believe that Buffy really regrets Riley leaving? And Roberta says, I don't know if we are meant to think that Buffy is confronted with regret that Riley was the one. I think it's more along the lines of, wow, things were a lot more simple back then and with him. Of course, things have never been simple for her. But when things were good with her and Riley, it worked nicely. And now Mr. and Mrs. Riley seem to be having a pretty great life. I'm not saying she, meaning Buffy, doesn't have a glimmer of hope about having another opportunity. I'm sure there was a spark. But I think her bad feelings are more about the contrast. You talk about light and dark in the episode. His return shines a light on everything that doesn't work about her life, including quite literally that she and Spike are now exposed. And Spike, still being Spike, the doctor, is exposed. Meantime, Riley's life has moved forward in all the ways he would want it to. This is such a great observation and good points here. I love the comments about shining the light on Buffy, exposing her and Spike, and Spike being exposed. And it made me think of something I didn't comment on, but I did notice in the episode is Spike is the one that we see the closest to naked. Buffy is under a sheet with him, and then she's off to the side getting dressed. But when Spike is talking to Riley, he is as naked as you can show on network television and he looks kind of skinny and 
almost scrawny compared to Riley, who has been built up in this episode, both figuratively and literally, so that he looks taller and he looks like this black up spy guy. And Spike is nearly naked. And I took it at the time as he's flaunting this, like, I'm with Buffy, here I am, I've, I've just been having sex with Buffy. But it fits with what Roberta is saying because Spike is also exposed and a light is shown upon him. Thank you both for those comments. If you would like to comment, you can email me at buffystorypod at gmail.com, post on the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page, or message me or comment on Patreon. And you can comment on Patreon even if you are not a patron. If you sign in, find the episode, you can add a comment there. Andrew and Warren are returning from somewhere with boxes and Jonathan demands to know where they were. They give very vague answers, but they tell him that they've been watching Buffy on the surveillance cameras and they really did a number on the Slayer. Jonathan is paranoid about what Warren and Andrew were doing and he thinks they're keeping secrets and he wants to go out. If they could go out, he can go out. Warren convinces him to stay and they look at plans for a vault. We don't get any further info on what that is, so there's a, a minor story question there to try to keep us engaged with them and and tuning back in and Warren says things are about to pick up big time they need to stick together Jonathan looks doubtful but he doesn't go out on the DVD the writer and director said the geek trio are always good comic relief that the plan for the season was that the demons are these comic guys like the doctor said which is why it fits so well with the hospital scenes because the audience is also wondering are these three guys really the enemy for the season when is the real enemy going to show up in my view they carried this out too far maybe it was because they had normal again in mind at this point in the season but as I'll talk about more in spoilers in previous seasons there was always a shift much closer to mid-season where who you thought was the villain or what you thought was the main fight changes and here we're into episode 17 and it's still these three guys Buffy at home again looks at a photo of her parents with her when she was little. I'm pretty sure it's that same little girl who played child Buffy in Weight of the World. And the way she looks at it, you can see how lost and sad she is. Willow now shows Buffy a picture of the demon, a really nice juxtaposition of these two realities for her. And Willow tells her it's a glargoglamashnik. I know I'm not saying it right, but uh, Willow does a great job of saying it. She tells Buffy it's Stinger carries its own antidote and they'll be able to help her. Buffy responds that she feels so lost. Willow tries to reassure her it's the poison, but Buffy clarifies that even before this, she's been so detached 
And Willow says, Buffy, look at me. You are not in an institution. You have never been in an institution. And Buffy whispers, yes, I have. On the DVD, the writer said, this is a critical moment playing with the fan base. This is something the audience didn't know, but there was that period between when the movie happened or at least when Buffy was first called to be a Slayer and the TV show started, so they can insert things that happened during that time period that we didn't know before. Willow is so surprised when Buffy says she was in an asylum. And this is an example of exposition that works for two reasons. One, Willow doesn't know these things. And two, she pushes back against Buffy not in any sort of way that they're fighting, but there is conflict because Willow is finding this hard to believe and because she is trying to pull her friend back from the brink. Willow says, what? And at 19 minutes, 52 seconds, Buffy says, back when I saw my first vampires, I got so scared. I told my parents and they completely freaked out. They thought there was something wrong with me. So they sent me to a clinic. Willow, not contradicting her, but a little bit of conflict here says you never said anything so it's it's more like she's saying oh I you know I wish you had told me you never told me and Buffy says I was only there a couple weeks I stopped talking about it and they let me go eventually my parents just forgot and Willow says god that's so horrible and Buffy says what if I'm still there and she is so afraid and she's crying and says what if I never left that clinic and Willow says Buffy Buffy you're not I'm so sorry you had to go through that, but it's in the past. You've got to trust me. We're going to get you that antidote. Pushing back, not in a way to fight with Buffy in a negative way, but to say, hang on, we're going to get you back. On the timeline issue mentioned in the DVD that we had this time frame that we don't know what happened to Buffy, this is still a big thing to introduce, right? She has known Willow for six years and she's never told her I was in a psych ward. There haven't been overt conversations about it, but introducing this works. One, when Buffy says, I was only there a few weeks, and you could see why that might be something she wouldn't share with her new friends, especially when, one, Buffy learned the vampires were real, so she, up until now, was not doubting her mental health Two, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was still a lot of stigma about mental health. And while I don't think she'd really think her friends would think less of her, I could see where she would just want to put that behind her. And then we do have some references in Buffy in the episode Ted, Robot Ted, reads Buffy's diary and says he'll tell her mother and she will spend her best dating years in a psychiatric ward or a mental institution. And at the time, that just seemed like, yeah, it's Ted being a jerk. He's like, your mother's going to think you're crazy. But it fits with this scenario if part of what he read was that Buffy was in an institution for a while or if Joyce told him that because she was telling him all kinds of other things about Buffy. Also, the end of season two, when Buffy and Joyce fight, Joyce has just learned about Spike. She's met a vampire. She's heard about Angel and so forth. Buffy is going off 
to go fight Angel. Joyce doesn't want her to leave. And in their fight, Buffy says, I am not crazy because Joyce says, Buffy, you need help. And she says, I'm not crazy or something like that. And at the time, I saw it as just Joyce is in denial because, yeah, she did see that vampire get dusted in front of her, but we've seen that everyone rationalizes those things in Sunnydale. But this also fits. Now, I don't know if the writers knew someday they would do an episode like Normal again or if they just were able to build on that, but that is part of why that works. So if you are going to introduce something new, some brand new backstory into either a long-running series or maybe you're writing a novel and towards the end you, you need to fill in this backstory, you need a reason. Why did this not come out before? Why did the character not share this before? Or why was it not shared with the reader? And two, ideally you want to build on something where there are some seeds earlier in your series or in your story. Novel's not a great example because you could go back and write in those seeds, but, but that would be what to do. Go back and write in some seeds that don't tip your hand, but that make it believable that this new part of the backstory is being introduced. Willow now tells Buffy that Xander is hunting for the demon right now and Buffy is worried about him that demon is too strong for Xander alone and Willow assures him that he's got help and at 21 minutes 26 seconds we cut to Spike and Xander demon hunting. Spike rants about Buffy being bloody self-centered thinking they're all not real and she made them up. Xander says Spike we need muscle not color commentary but Spike is really angry and he goes on that it might explain a few things if it's all in Buffy's mind. Spike says, thinks up some chip in my head, makes me soft, fall in love with her, then turn me into her sodden sex slave. And Sandra says, what? And Spike says, nothing, alternative realities. On the DVD, they said they had fun playing with how do your best friends react when you tell them that they're just in your head, they're not real. And maybe this too, or or almost certainly, is part of what gets Spike mad enough that he turns on Buffy later when they were okay last week. That idea that, oh, fine, first you won't tell your friends, you throughout the relationship treat me pretty badly, you claim you don't care about me, and I'm sure that you do, and now I'm just a figment of your imagination. I do still struggle a little bit with how far Spike swings in this episode from where he was last time, but there is a lot that could justify it. Spike now tells Xander that maybe in an alternate reality, he might not have left Anya at the altar and the demon leaps out at them. Spike says, oh, balls, you didn't say it was a Glargo Gamashkinik. And Xander says, because I can't say Glarba. And the demon attacks, saving him from saying it. The two fight. Xander shoots it with a dart gun, which helps. And between the two of them, they subdue the demon. And Xander says, I altered his reality. We are 
a little past the midpoint of the episode. Normally at the midpoint, you see the protagonist suffer a major reversal, make a major commitment to the quest, throwing caution to the wind, or both. And usually if a story has a really strong midpoint, it goes a long way toward being a very powerful story. And if you don't have it, often the story kind of falters in the middle, which is why I stress it so much. And I found that to be true in most of the Buffy episodes. If I can't pick out the midpoint, often the whole plot feels fuzzy. But here, I don't see one individual moment that I can say, oh, here's a major commitment or here's a major reversal. All the same, the mid section of this episode is so strong. And I feel like it starts, we were about 19 minutes in, when Buffy tells Willow in depth about being in the institution. And I feel like that starts a major reversal for her where she is starting to think, she says, what if I am still there? Then there isn't a commitment here by Buffy, but right at the midpoint, Spike and Xander, despite their differences, unite and get the demon. So we as the audience know that the antidote is within their reach. But that only ratchets up the tension because we see that Buffy is in such bad shape. So the question is, are they going to get it to her in time? And that keeps the momentum strong. And now we're going to see another reversal for Buffy at 22 minutes, 55 seconds. So a bit past the midpoint, Buffy is sitting on the bed looking very lost and Dawn brings her tea and Buffy says, I'm okay, Dawn. And Dawn says, the thousand yard stare really helps sell that. She puts her hand on Buffy's cheek, observes that Buffy is burning up. Buffy says she should be taller than Dawn. Things are coming apart. Dawn's grades are going down. She's been stealing. I'm on board with all of that. But then Buffy says that Willow's been doing Dawn's chores. And that was, for whatever reason, the only line that just didn't ring true to me, maybe because we've heard so little about chores and who does what in the household. Also, those other things are so much bigger that it feels a little weird that it's Willow's doing your chores, isn't she? Dawn denies it, so maybe that's why we end on that, so we can have a little conflict. Buffy grabs her arm and says, we have to deal with these things, Dawn. And there's a flash to the hospital, and Joyce tells Buffy she doesn't have a sister. And she gets Buffy to repeat that eventually, but first Buffy says she didn't grow up with her, but the monks made her. Hank tells Buffy it's her mind playing tricks on her, and they call her their little girl and say, quote, our one and only end quote. They want to take her home and take care of her. Exactly what Buffy so needs. And it's especially telling that her dad is there. Her dad and her mom. Her dad who abandoned her, didn't even come back when Joyce died, just has been so delinquent and now he's here with Joyce. They want to take care of her. And on the DVD, the writer and director said the more time we're in the hospital scenes, the more we identify with Buffy not liking the delusion of Sunnydale anymore, the more we feel for why Buffy might choose 
the reality where Joyce and Hank are there. Now Buffy flashes back to Sunnydale to an angry Dawn who heard Buffy say she didn't have a sister. Dawn demands to know if she's there and she goes on, it's your ideal reality and I'm not even a part of it. Buffy tries to apologize but Dawn, ever mature, stalks off saying she has to go finish her chores. It's so frustrating to me. This is one of the few things I don't like in the episode, but it's it's clearly not this writer and this director because this is how Dawn is portrayed throughout, pretty much, where she is just so uh, sulky and... Maybe it's because they are trying so hard to make Dawn not be like Buffy was at that age. Because they do comment on the DVD that they are always marveling that, oh, Dawn is the age Buffy was when this series started. And I suppose that writing Dawn this way is to not have her just be mini Buffy, who sure got angry, sometimes was immature, went off and did things, but never had this sort of whiny, very self-involved approach to things, which might be more realistic for a teenager, but is just so hard to watch. Xander and Spike wrestle the demon into the basement so that Willow can break off its stinger and make the antidote. She sends Xander to the magic shop for supplies, but specifies that it's not magic, it's chemistry. She'll do it the old-fashioned way. Spike says he'll keep an eye on the demon at the house, and before he leaves, Xander tells Spike to make sure that's all he's ogling. Another reason Spike might be such a jerk later. Oh, and that moment with Dawn, I felt like that was another major reversal for Buffy because we've seen and we'll continue to see in the episode that Dawn is a big part of what anchors her to Sunnydale. And now Dawn has stalked off and is mad at Buffy for hallucinating in, in this way. At 26 minutes, 14 seconds, Willow brings Buffy a mug with the antidote in it. It is morning, and she says it took longer because she didn't use magic, adding to that feeling of everyone is struggling with their constraints this season. She tells Buffy to drink it when it's cold, and everything will go back to normal. Buffy thanks her. She's still sitting on her bed and says Willow never stops coming through. I just finished the publication process for Buffy and the Art of Story Season 3, Part 1. So by the time you hear this, it should be ready for pre-order in the ebook edition. The paperback might even be available. I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can go to lisalilly.com. That's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y.com slash Buffy, and you will find the latest Buffy book there as well as the previous books. And even if you aren't going to get the book now, I urge you to go take a look because the cover designer did such a beautiful job with that cover. I, I have loved every cover that she has done, but this one I found especially stunning. It is my favorite so far, and it weaves in themes from that first 
half of season three. So please do go check it out. The book takes the podcast episodes, reshapes them, does more to point out the specific writing issues in the episode. Each starts with all the major things that you will learn in it, ends with questions for your writing. And I think that you will, if you are working on your own writing, will find it really helpful. And it's also just fun if you want to relive the episodes again. So that is lisalily.com slash Buffy. On the DVD, they mentioned something I did not notice, but I think worked really well on a subliminal level, which is that Buffy in the morning is sitting on the bed in the very same position she was in the night before in the same spot. So it shows that Buffy is stuck in her internal struggles as everything happens around her. So it reflects her feelings. I think that's amazing. It's a great way to convey that Buffy is almost frozen with his fear and despair. Spike appears behind Willow, asks how Buffy is. Willow tells him Buffy will be okay, but makes sure she drinks all of the antidote. After Willow leaves, Spike asks Buffy how she is, and Buffy, still looking really confused and overwhelmed, tells him he needs to leave her alone. He's not part of her life. He starts to stalk off, but he turns back, and he says, I hope you don't think this antidote's gonna rid you of that nasty martyrdom. See, I figured it out, love. You can't help yourself. You're not drawn to the dark like I thought. You're addicted to the misery. It's why you won't tell your pals about us. You might have to actually be happy if you did. And he goes on that either her friends would understand and support her and help her out, or they would throw her out and she could finally be at peace in the dark with him. Either way, she'd be better off, but she's too twisted. And he says, let yourself live already and stop with the bloody hero trip for a second. Then he gives her an ultimatum, tell her friends about them or he will. On first watch, I found this a little jarring because it's written as if they never broke up. I remember thinking, well, they're already broken up. He seemed to understand last episode that it wasn't because she was afraid of what her friends would think, that it was genuine to her. And why does he care if she tells them now? But... One, hope springs eternal, but two, as I look at all the jabs at Spike from Xander and even how Buffy does that, oh, I was checking him for contraband, I could see where even if it won't get them together, he's talking here like he thinks they would be together again maybe but even if it wouldn't he could stop having to be silent when Xander says things like how pathetic Spike is for having feelings for Buffy. Buffy after Spike leaves takes a breath closes her eyes starts to drink but then she stops and pours it into the trash and that's at 29 minutes one second. Now that is a commitment and Often you'll see that type of commitment at the midpoint, but I think that it works really well here later because we had such a series of escalating reversals for Buffy as she goes deeper and deeper, and now she makes this choice. The conflict escalates 
As the scene cuts to the hospital, Buffy says she doesn't want to go back there and tells the doctor and her parents she wants to be healthy again and asks what to do. And we cut to commercial. On return, at 29 minutes, 22 seconds, Buffy begs for help. She wants to go home with her parents. Joyce tells her first she needs to get better. And the doctor tells her take it one step at a time and get rid of what she clings to, like her family and friends, the things she wants, what keeps her going back. On the DVD, the writer and director commented that when we're in the hospital with Buffy, at this point in the episode, we relate to her not wanting to go back to Sunnydale. But then when we're in Sunnydale again with Buffy and she goes after her friends as she's going to do, suddenly Buffy is the enemy and we're rooting against her which I had not thought about before, but it's brilliant. We are so empathetic with Buffy, and yet we do have to root against her. The doctor says that last summer, when Buffy had a, quote, momentary awakening, end quote, it was her friends who pulled her back to the delusion. And this is the time that Buffy was dead, that she remembers as being in heaven, which is such a great use of the mythology and the story to this point. It explains that and it fits because her friends did bring her back. And you could see where Buffy's mind would put that in a delusion. And Joyce says they're not really her friends, they're tricks. And she tells her to do whatever it takes to convince herself of that. Now we're nearing that last major plot turn that I think of as the three-quarter turn. It should grow from the midpoint and take the story in yet another new direction. There are a few points that could be it, including what already happened, that Buffy said she wanted help. And all of it does come from those escalating reversals at the midpoint for Buffy, where things have become so awful for her, she starts to be convinced that the real world is the psych ward, and that's where she wants to be, and now she is acting on that. In the kitchen, Buffy tells Willow she's still dazed but better, not mentioning that she didn't drink the antidote. Willow tells her the demon is still in the basement in case they need more antidote, but she's really glad that Buffy is starting to feel better. On the DVD, the writer noted that we worry for the characters more because we know what's going on with Buffy and they don't. And this is known as dramatic irony, as I've pointed out in other episodes, and it was used in the very uh, first Buffy episodes, the pilot, because there we knew Darla was a vampire and Buffy and the other characters did not, and we knew the danger they were in, and now the characters are in danger from Buffy, and that does ratchet up the tension. Buffy thanks Willow. Willow offers to make her something to eat and they go into the kitchen and the scene fades to Xander coming in the front door. Another great storytelling technique because it makes the viewer connect the dots and do the work as to what happened. We know it wasn't good, but we don't actually see what Buffy did. And the more you can have your audience almost be part of the story by filling in the blanks, as long as you don't leave so much open that they're confused, the more engaged 
they are. Xander now says, friends, Romans, anyone? Because the house is so silent. Xander finds Buffy alone in the kitchen. She claims she's better. Xander says he so doesn't want to see Spike right now, but he almost feels sorry for Spike. He can't believe the things Spike said, and Xander goes on that he gets it. He's been part of the Buffy obsession himself. Buffy hits him with a frying pan to the face. An interesting choice of weapon, given that in Xander's fake vision of the future, he was swinging a frying pan at Anya. Buffy drags him into the basement. Willow is already bound and gagged, lying on the floor. This is perfect because Willow can't speak. She's got duct tape over her mouth and she can't use her hands, so she cannot use magic and that avoids this episode swerving into will willow use magic to save her friends the scenario we had in older and far away and it is otherwise a legitimate question because this demon is going to come really close to killing them and it's such an immediate danger that if willow were able to use magic that would have to be a question in the audience's mind here we avoid all of that by having her bound and gagged the way she is. I don't know if the writers thought about that, but it is a great way to make sure your story doesn't get derailed by something that you don't want to take over because that would become so important and we would lose Buffy's part in this. And it would take the pressure off Buffy as a character. Buffy stands over her friends. Then she looks at that chained demon, then goes upstairs and locks the door to the basement. This next part could also be where the three-quarter turn happens because she, at 33 minutes, goes looking through the house for Dawn. Dawn sees that something's wrong, but then she just tells Buffy she's going to Janice's as she packs her bag, where they actually like having her around. So more annoying Dawn, and Buffy wants her gone anyway, so why not go? Buffy tells Dawn she's going downstairs with the others, and this suggests Dawn is the toughest one for Buffy. She saved Dawn for last. And the reason I think it could be seen as the three-quarter turn is this is the first time a character knows what's going on. Willow and Xander are taken completely by surprise, but Dawn pretty quickly gets it and she is arguing back with Buffy. She pleads with Buffy that she's real. She begs Buffy to talk to her, tells her she's hallucinating. But Buffy reiterating something her parents said tells Dawn that Dawn is just a trap for Buffy's mind. Dawn tells her the asylum's not real, but Buffy keeps stalking her through the upstairs. Dawn says she's Buffy's sister. She needs her and loves her. She must know it's real. Buffy goes into a monologue, a short monologue, saying sure it is, because what's more real, a sick girl in an institution or some kind of supergirl chosen to fight demons and save the world? That's ridiculous. A girl who sleeps with a vampire she hates? Yeah, that makes sense. And throughout, Buffy is mainly talking to herself, and she is stalking Dawn. Dawn goes into other rooms, slams doors. Buffy breaks through. 
At 36 minutes 11 seconds, Buffy covers Dawn's mouth with duct tape, so we don't see her actually knocking Dawn out, but we cut to her doing this in the basement, leaves her bound on the floor with the others. We are now moving toward the climax, that last major plot point where the opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the conflict. In the psychiatric ward, the doctor and Joyce and Hank urge Buffy to make it easy easier on herself and in Sunnydale Buffy unchains the demon to let it kill the others and the writer and director said it was perfect having the demon there so Buffy doesn't have to kill her friends herself because otherwise the audience would question whether Buffy could ever do it and I agree that was brilliant because it would be hard to see Buffy even in the terrible state she's in physically killing her friends. We go to a commercial. On return, Buffy is breathing hard as she watches Xander, who's chained to a post, kick the demon. And Xander begs Buffy to free his hands, but she goes and hides under the stairs to watch. Upstairs, Tara walks in the house and calls out, Buffy shifts to the psych ward again. She is whimpering with distress over her friends. She runs to the wall, pressing her head against it. Joyce calls her name, tells her it'll be okay. It's all not real. Keep concentrating on Joyce. I see Joyce and Hank as the antagonists in the episode. Really, it's the trio. They set this off. And on a deeper level, it's Buffy's internal struggle. But Joyce and Hank are perfect as this force to try to convince Buffy that this delusion is real. And they are really the only ones who could do it. The sympathetic doctor could do quite a bit, but it is Hank and Joyce together again, wanting to take Buffy home, wanting to take care of her, calling back to a simpler time. As Roberta noted, it's never simple for Buffy not just romantically, but since she became the Slayer and even since her parents started fighting and splitting up and here they seem united, they're together, and this was a time when Buffy felt like a normal girl. So we have the title of the episode, Normal Again. Tara runs downstairs and uses a spell to free Willow and Dawn and Xander, and then she attacks the demon by using a spell to knock shelves over onto it. But Buffy reaches up, grabs Tara's leg, and knocks her down the stairs, and Tara is knocked unconscious. On the DVD, they said they liked bringing Tara back because we had that open question from the beginning, Tara and Willow, are they going to speak again? What will happen? And now Tara is here helping. Buffy is under the stairs. She's nearly crying. And in the psych ward, Joyce crouches next to Buffy and tells her to look at Joyce. And she says, Buffy is a survivor. She can do this. And on the DVD, it must have been the director comments on something else I didn't notice, but that I think had a huge subliminal effect, which is that Buffy is crouching under the stairs against the wall, and then we cut to her in the psych ward against the wall, crouched down. And in the close-up, we cannot tell which reality she's in. She could be in either one, but then we see Joyce. And they also talked about this is where the two worlds really start coming together. 
and we see Buffy so distressed in the psych ward about what is happening in the Sunnydale world. In Sunnydale, Buffy squeezes her eyes shut. She whimpers Xander's name and then Dawn's as Dawn screams when the demon throws her aside. Uh, Willow fights the demon with a baseball bat and in the psych ward, Buffy smacks her own head against the wall. Joyce tells her to be strong. She can beat this. And now comes the climactic moment, that very last confrontation where it all resolves. This has all been part of it, but this is it. Joyce says, I know you're afraid. I know the world feels like a hard place sometimes, but you've got people who love you, your dad and I. We have all the faith in the world in you. We'll always be with you. You have got a world of strength in your heart. I know you do. You just have to find it again. Believe in yourself. Buffy is really listening and she turns to look at Joyce as Joyce strokes her hair. Buffy, we can see in her face, she gathers herself. She looks calm now and she says, you're right. Thank you. Joyce smiles. She's near tears. And then Buffy says, goodbye. And Joyce is stricken as Buffy looks down. We cut back to Sunnydale. Buffy emerges from under the stairs, fights the demon to save her friends. So Buffy has prevailed over Joyce and Hank. Yet there are so many layers here because Joyce is the one who gives her the strength to do that, though it is Buffy calling on her memory of her mother, all she learned from her, what her mother might really say to her in this moment, which is what makes it so strong. And it reminds me of Joyce's speech in Prophecy Girl, the finale of season one, where Buffy is not going to go fight the master. She doesn't want to die. Joyce says to her, Buffy's saying she's not going to prom, and she makes it sound like it's about not getting asked by the right person because Joyce doesn't know about Buffy being a slayer. And Joyce says something like, who says you can't go? Is it written somewhere? And I felt like that gave Buffy the strength to say, I don't care what's written. I am going to go do the right thing. I mean, there are other things that play into it, but Joyce gives her such good advice while not knowing what she's advising her about. And it is the same here because the Joyce in the psych ward doesn't know that this advice is what Buffy in Sunnydale needs. And I feel like that is what Buffy's unconscious would conjure for her there. We are now in the falling action where the writers tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. Really, the killing of the demon is in some ways falling action because the big thing was Buffy making that choice, finding that strength to deal with a world that is hard and realizing she still has her mother's love inside her and she does need to believe in herself again. And on the DVD, the writer and director commented that Buffy dispatches the demon so quickly because it was never about the demon. It was Buffy's internal fight. This, to me, is one of the very best examples in Buffy 
of the demon being used in a metaphorical way, but that does not feel anticlimactic. Especially in season four, there were some plots where, yeah, I saw the resonance with the demon or vampire plot, but the vampire demon or monster plot really felt flat because I just didn't care about it enough and the episode was all about all the emotional angst and that didn't quite carry enough for me either but here the demon is so interwoven into it we barely see this demon but the points we see are so important and we see that pivotal climactic moment with Buffy and Joyce, and then we don't waste time on a long battle with the demon. It just all works so well. Buffy now turns to her friends as they stagger to their feet, and we need to see how will they react, what will she do. They stare at her. She says she's so sorry. They reassure her that they are okay. They want Buffy to rest, but she says she can't until Till they make more antidote. Willow tells Buffy that they will and everything's going to be okay. And at 41 minutes 32 seconds, we flash to the hospital. Buffy is still crouched in that corner, but not responsive at all. The doctor shines a light in her eyes. She doesn't respond. He tells Joyce and Hank, very sad, that she's gone and the camera pans back we see them from farther away Hank comforts Joyce as she cries and it pans back all the way so that we are seeing through a small square window in the locked door to Buffy's cell and that is the end I found this so disturbing on first watch that feeling that oh my god is this supposed to be real is Buffy stuck here or is there an alternate reality where Buffy got stuck in the institution and on the DVD they said Joss liked ending there um, the writer decided to do it but cleared it with Joss Whedon and he liked it to challenge the audience about what is reality and I remember spending all this time thinking about the episode and thinking okay but we saw the geek trio in the beginning before Buffy started having delusions and we saw this happening and Buffy wasn't there and all the world in the psych ward is only from Buffy's point of view so that's her delusion and of course I knew the show was not going to say oh whoops all mental institution all Buffy's delusion but it just hit me on such an emotional level that I needed to do that to reassure myself which to me is such a sign of great writing so that is it other than foreshadowing which includes spoilers if you found this episode helpful in the way I look at story useful and you want to try it for your own writing, you can download free story structure worksheets. Go to writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. If you're not sticking around for foreshadowing, thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, season six, episode 18, Entropy, where Anya, still grief-stricken, returns to Sunnydale and tries to take vengeance on Xander.
And we are back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. The geeks mention the surveillance cameras in this episode and how they saw Buffy through them. That foreshadows the cameras in the magic box and the gang seeing Spike and Anya having sex there. Also, Buffy says to Dawn, a girl who sleeps with a vampire she hates? Yeah, that makes sense. Dawn doesn't really react to that, understandably, because she is trying to persuade Buffy not to kill her. But it sets up that Dawn is the one who picks up that Buffy and Spike were together. She observes how hurt Buffy looks when Buffy sees Spike and Anya on the video, and Dawn is the only one who is not surprised other than Tara who knows the doctor's comment about oh it's just these three geeks from high school suggests hey we should have a stronger villain by now or calls out that we should have a stronger villain by now at the time we still have no reason to think the villain will be Willow other than what happened very early in the season when Willow reacted the way she did to Giles and and pretty much threatened him. I did go back and look at when the seasons shifted. Season two, at the end of episode 13, Angel turns into Angelus. In season three, at the end of 14, Faith kills the deputy mayor. The mayor does remain a villain, but this is where Faith moves toward the dark side. And that is end of episode 14. In season four, the end of episode 13, Professor Walsh is killed and Adam awakens. Not my favorite villain, but that is a major shift. And here we are at the end of episode 17 and still have no hint that the villain is going to be Dark Willow or anyone other than these three. And that adds to the slowness of season six, the the kind of plotting feeling because these guys don't seem like that big a threat, though certainly they have caused huge damage to Buffy here. Buffy was pretty close to letting her friends get killed, so they are quite dangerous, yet they don't feel like it even after this episode because it feels almost like, well, happenstance, how many times has Andrew called a demon? And okay, this one time it came very close to doing some damage but they don't have that feeling of momentum. And they still won't in the next episode. It's not until the end of episode 19 that Warren kills Tara, triggering Dark Willow. And we get a strong hint of that at the end of episode 19. But Dark Willow is only the villain for the last three episodes. I've never read anything about that, but I have to think part of it is... They couldn't quite see how they could write Willow as the villain for as much of the season as Angelus was. There was a reason Angel changed so dramatically. He lost his soul, and we could bring Angel back later by restoring the soul. Dark Willow has for sure a reason to emerge, but if she stayed instead of for three episodes, she was there for nine episodes, three times as long, and was a major threat during them it would be really hard to pull Willow back from the brink to make us be on her side again and, and to integrate her with the group again. 
maybe you could have achieved it by not showing a lot of Dark Willow, but then that also doesn't fit with the idea that she is running on vengeance, that she's running on grief. Willow would have to more advertently go into the dark. Yes, she makes a choice, but she is fueled by all of this. And the more time passed, the harder it would be to empathize with her. Or if she wasn't doing much and we didn't see her, she'd feel like another weak villain. So I suspect that's why, but for me, that is part of why this season doesn't work as well. Our antagonists just aren't driving very much of the action. The trio plot continues. It's very slow burn as we get those hints, something about a vault, and we see a map, and Warren says something about something big's going to happen. We don't know what it is, though, and you could easily miss those things in this episode. Jonathan is paranoid about Warren and Andrew keeping secrets. And while Warren convinces him not to go out and to stay and that they have to stick together, Jonathan still looks doubtful. I like those seeds, that there is discord among the three. We're adding to that. We saw it most strongly in the episode where they killed Katrina, that there would be a split. And here Jonathan is suspecting the other two are going to leave him out. And they do, in fact, do that. And Jonathan eventually helps Buffy and turns against them. So there are some seeds of that there. And that's a nice subtle foreshadowing. I don't have a problem with the very gradual seeds of discord between the trio. I just want them to have been a more powerful force throughout the season, especially given that they stick around so long. That is it for foreshadowing and spoilers. Thank you again for listening. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I'm so glad I got the chance to share it with you. Come back in two weeks for season six, episode 18, Entropy, where Anya and Spike both struggle with rejection, and Xander is once again horrible to everybody. If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend about it or share it on social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lily. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.